Hey, what's up, camp believers and high performers? Welcome to another episode of the Can't Believe I Made It podcast. It's your boy, Des. In today's episode, I have my really, really phenomenal friend, Ben Mendelson on. And what really sparked interest in me reaching out and really wanted to tell his story is that when you step into this game of athleticism in this game of performance. And even if we look at people in the professional ranks, just like Ben Mendelson here, you might think to yourself that that might be a absolute dream job. And in some ways, having experienced that it absolutely is, but the hours are grueling. I oftentimes joke and maybe some of my colleagues and friends who are still in this might not think this is funny, but it is really hard to have a successful relationship marriage, or even merely just a successful relationship with your children and family members and friends when you are in the thick of a season. Big shout out to those people because most of those people are likely working anywhere from about 80 hours a week, not sleeping as well. It, it's, it's high performance at its best, and there's a lot of pressure. And so big shout out to all those people. But I oftentimes tell people that it's really hard to navigate some of the things that you believe in and love most when you are constantly doing this one thing. And when we look at professional sports, it's really, really great to wear that logo. It feels really good. And at the same time, it, it comes with its, I mean, just like anything else, right? It comes with its evils. And so if you would have told me a couple of years ago when I met Ben, that he would have left professional baseball with his childhood team, which I thought was like a dream opportunity uh, here for him for yet another dream opportunity to really look into the science and the performance aspects of what goes on with our firefighters. I'm sure we've all heard the statistic in the past is that most firefighters' deaths are due to cardiac arrest. And so I asked the really deep questions, the scientific questions about, hey, what can we glean from this constant state of fight or flight, which a lot of these firefighters and other emergency type people are engaged in, by the way, big shout out to you all for saving the world. I have nothing but respect for you all. And I, and I kind of dove into a recent story that myself and my family had, uh, had just witnessed from the standpoint of being still in your body and leading with that next best step for yourself. But we dove into the science of what's happening with our firefighters, and we dove into some of the life changes that Ben is currently going through. At the time, we didn't really discuss his newest venture in marrying his best friend and now wife, Savannah. The two of you have had, obviously, fantastic roots in the Can't Believe I Made It podcast. So biggest of congrats to you both for recently just getting married. So there's a lot of things on the table today that I'm really excited about. And I think what it points it back to is one, once again, inside of this season, it is okay to pivot. And two, what can we glean from our firefighters and our, our, our service men and women who are constantly acting at that state of fight or flight? What can we learn about tapping back into the body, tapping back into the moment to help us increase our mental performance, our life performance? how we perform in our relationships, how we perform in our work, and really just, just like I said, how we perform in life. I am so, so thankful to you, Ben, if you listen to this for hopping on, brother. It's going to be a good one. And I, and I think you can probably sense too, uh, and I said this in the pod, I don't like serious Ben. If you know anything about Ben, you know that he talks so much shit and he is so sarcastic. 
But in today's episode, he was on his best behavior, which uh, I think in some ways makes me really uncomfortable because it's not who he is. So if there's any discomfort on mine, it's because Ben did this to me. Anywho, I hope you enjoy the episode. Let's get it. All right, ladies and gents, uh, I'm excited for this one. I have one of my best friends and former colleagues, if you will, on the pod today, Benjamin Mendelson. Welcome, buddy. Morning, Des. Thanks for having me on, man. I know we've been trying to get this going for a while. I'm glad we finally did. You know, it's funny because you and I have had different versions of this podcast in just conversation. (laughs) (laughs) And oftentimes it's a lot of laughter and we kind of (laughs) premise this with and So for those that don't know, there's two sides of Benjamin Mendelssohn that I, well, one side rather that I really love and the other side that I, I don't, he, it's the, it's his professional side, uh, and having shared this space with him, uh, from a professional point of view, and, and we'll get into that in a little bit, uh, when he's serious, I just, I, I can't do it. So Ben, which version am I going to get of you today? <laughs> Desi, I like many people contain multitudes, so you are you're not going to know what you get till till the answer comes out. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> well, Ben, I'm I'm super excited for this for a couple of reasons. One, just like you said, I think we've had different versions of this chat for quite some time, and we've been trying to get this on the calendar. So obviously, there's there's one aspect that I'm super excited about. But I think the other thing, Ben, that I I'm really looking forward to, and we kind of talked about this off air where season eight and having the guest on and hearing their stories of pivoting has been really cool. And I think with yours, it'd be a really fantastic opportunity to talk about the process of where you've gotten to, because when I think of like hometown grown kids, you're definitely one of those people uh, growing up in Wisconsin. And when we think about our lives as, as children, like most of them, at least for me, I don't know about you, but I grew up wanting to be a professional athlete. And that was something that I wanted to do since day one. And when I was thinking about like, hey, how do we want to tell Ben's story? I thought one of the cool things that would be cool to start with is talking about your upbringing and what got you into professional sports. And then obviously describing the pivot. So going back to you know, little Ben, if you could like, just tell your story. Sure. Little curly haired Ben, back <laughs> when I still had hair. Um, so, you know, my sister, my sister and I, uh, we both had, we both grew up, uh, we, we kind of moved around a little bit as kids um, because just my, my dad's work was always uh, changing around until we were, um, maybe until we were about, six, seven, eight, my sister's one year older than me. Um, so it, for the first, you know, five, six years of our lives, we were moving around the Midwest a little bit just because of, um, because of our dad's work. Um, so we lived in a couple of different places, but Milwaukee is really where we, we, we ended up landing and we stayed here for, you know, most of our, our childhood. And then, you know, we went to grade school, high school, everything, but we both had, we both had really active childhoods. We were always doing stuff. Uh, I think like other nineties kids, you just, 
you know, we had, we lived in a small neighborhood where we're, you're always, <laughs> you know, riding bikes around and you, your friends down the block or a couple of streets over and you just ride your bike over there. The bikes piled up on the lawn. That's where, you know, where the party is. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, we were always playing sports. I think, I mean, I don't, I don't really know if there's any sport I didn't try as a kid, which was a credit to, uh, definitely a credit to our parents. They wanted us to be active and they wanted us to try new things. Um, so my sister and I were really, we were actually really avid swimmers as kids. We were on swim team, um, in a couple different places as like youths. And that was like, we swam more than I think anything else. Um, our dad was a swimmer. He was a competitive swimmer and he swam, uh, until college. And then he, uh, stopped competitively swimming when he was in college and he himself made a, a couple of career pivots. Um, but that sort of athletic mindset was something that both our parents wanted us to have, um, whether it was just a way to get us out of the house or if it was a way to actually keep us healthy and active and engaged. Um, but I think just having that mindset of always being active and playing sports kind of started the mindset for me of just loving being around the environment. Um, yeah. I don't, think I really understood uh, the value of being in team sports until I got to high school um, because I, I started playing football. Uh, I think I started playing football in seventh grade and it was fun, but I really had no idea what I was doing and it was like a good time and I wanted to keep doing it, but I, I didn't quite grasp everything. But when I started in high school, our, our high school seniors and the captains, I thought had, um, they were pretty good leaders and it, it got me more engaged in what it is like to be in team sports and what it is like to have that kind of group of people that is, you know, you, you almost treat as a second family yeah. uh, when you're on that team. And, uh, when I was in growing up, I played baseball, loved baseball. And then I switched to play football and lacrosse when I was in high school. And again, lacrosse was a sport I knew nothing about when I started playing, but we had, you know, a ton of open spots on that team. So it was a way that I knew I was going to actually play a sport. Whereas <laughs> baseball, I was, I was, yeah. I was not a, a super great baseball player. Um, and so I, uh, I just, I made that little switch and it was something that I really loved and I love that sport and the history of that game. And it's, it's really, um, it's something that I always pay attention to when college lacrosse season comes around because it's such a fun game to watch. Um, and yeah, I, I think there's so many aspects of, of my childhood growing up that probably defined things that I still do today that yeah. you, you can't quite pinpoint, but I know yeah. that just being active as a kid was, was such a huge part of our, our lifestyle. And um, it was something that we always, you know, still to this day, just keep carrying with us. So Ben, I, I think, I mean, my recollection of conversations that we've had that kind of helped you to stumble into professional sports, I can imagine had a lot to do with, you know, keeping active. Cause I think if I remember correctly, you, you played college football, right? Yeah. I, I, I was on, I was on the team. I was I'll like... say that I was, again, I, I was not, I was never uh, a spectacular athlete. Um, yeah. <laughs> when it came to when it came to playing football, but I was very fortunate enough to uh, 
have an opportunity to play at Ithaca College, a small school in upstate New York, and yeah. D3 football. And um, my freshman and sophomore year were, it was, I've never experienced, I think, a bigger gap in where I was coming in with my skill set. Yeah. What was actually required to be good at that level. Yeah. Um, because I went to a very small high school here. We played a very simple style of football. And then we actually went to a college where it was somebody's you know, entire full-time job to be a football coach. Yeah. And so it was, it was totally different and it just took me completely by surprise. And I tried my best to keep up with it, but it definitely was uh, a bit <laughs> over my head, but it actually worked out for the better because I, after I was done playing after my sophomore year, uh, the coaching staff asked me if I would stay on as a part of the team in a coaching capacity yeah. because um, they knew that I was in exercise science as a major. And so they wanted to offer an opportunity for me to get some kind of volunteer hours, uh, being with the team in the weight room, seeing that aspect of it, but also learning how to coach. And so uh, one of my good friends and I, we stayed on the staff as sort of student assistant coaches. And we worked with the uh, the like freshman linebackers and defensive line. And, and we had a really good time. And, it, and for me, it just taught me so much about public speak, like public speaking skills that yeah. I still carry to this day. Yeah. Um, but it just taught me so much about learning how to build rapport with younger athletes, sort of putting yourself in you know somebody else's shoes. But it was kind of a unique experience where I was also coaching, uh, coaching players that were also my roommates. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're, you know, we're the same age, we've had similar experiences and I have to sort of start dividing between who's, who's fun Ben and who's professional Ben. Oh, that was the start. That was the start, <laughs> Ben. I hate it. <laughs> I, I actually didn't know that. So, uh, Ben, like, obviously you're, uh, I guess I would say a homegrown talent, right? So when you got into baseball just in general i mean what was that process like for you and how i don't know like were, was it exciting being a kid from wisconsin also joining the milwaukee brewers i mean what was that process like for you yeah it was super exciting so after i was done with my undergrad i i basically went right into my master's program at uh university of wisconsin milwaukee and my master's was actually in focusing primarily in sports psych um, and I, 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 at the time didn't know if I wanted to go into sports psychology and work completely in that field, or if I wanted to stay in strength and conditioning, I was kind of leaning more towards staying in strength and conditioning, but using the sports psychology knowledge as a better, as a way to better my skill set, um, and just have better conversational skills and to, um, to understand athletes a little bit on a different level, um, yeah. which I, which I think is what happened. And I, I think that's something that. Uh, I will never take for granted is the the skills learned during that program. Yeah, yeah. But but after my first year or during my first year of that program, uh, one of the professors at UW Milwaukee, um, who is my exercise physiology professor and is currently now my advisor in my doctoral program, um, he had been sent a job posting for a strength and conditioning internship with the Brewers that was going to cover their summer league uh rookie team in az and that was he sent he sent it to me i applied for it it was something that i never thought was gonna 
actually work because it's like, this is a professional yeah, sports yeah. team. I'm currently just some schmuck personal trainer in <laughs> Southeastern Wisconsin. Like this yeah. is sure this, this, you know, this will be, this dope, will be a good experience. No yeah. yeah. It'll be a great experience to interview. And I interviewed with the then coordinator, whose name is Jeff Mester. And we had a great conversation and uh, I interviewed with him while I was actually driving I was going from Milwaukee to Louisville, Kentucky for the National Strength and Conditioning Association's Coaches Conference in mm -hmm. 2015. So I interviewed with him basically while I was uh, in the car and um, driving through a snowstorm in Indiana. Oh, God. And yeah, it was a little hectic, but, but we had a great Midwest conversation. Wild, dude. <laughs> uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on over here. Um, but but I interviewed with him. We had a great conversation. And then I found out a couple of weeks later that I actually was offered the position and it was just wild. I had like, never like childhood dream accomplished. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I, we, you know, we had, we had uh, season tickets to County stadium, which was the stadium before Miller park, which is now Ampam field. Um, so, you know, we saw the Brewers games all the time growing yeah. up. Like we were big Brewers fans and so for me, it was, it was like, this is unbelievable. Like it just could not get better than this. And yeah. when I got down to the complex and started working, it was again, just sort of a, a total whirlwind of learning what's going on, learning the schedule, the system, meeting everybody because there's such a, a large staff and there's so many players. And yeah. also at the time I did not speak a lick of Spanish, um, which is a slightly important skill set when you work in baseball. And, and so it was, uh, I just remember in the old, if you remember in the old complex, um, oh, I remember. there was, <laughs> yeah. So there was a wall, um, like that, I think it was like the North wall of the weight room where there was the two TVs and right next to the TVs, there was a big banner and the banner said it was, it said something like your path to the big leagues. And it had a logo of all the minor mm -hmm. league affiliates. And oh, I just yeah. remember I I'd look at that banner every day as I was walking from the locker room to the office. And I was just like, look up that banner. I was like, man, like this is, this is where it starts. This is incredible. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, so I was, I was down in Arizona for, uh, about three months for that first, that first internship. And then I had to go back and, and finish my master's program. And then during the master's pro the, that second year of my master's program, I, that window of working in baseball had now been opened and it was something that I was like, well, this is something I could definitely do once I'm done with my program. Um, and it's something that I would want to do. And I found the, uh, the resources of the pro baseball strength and conditioning, uh, coaches society website and all the job postings. And I mean, I sent resumes to as many teams as had postings on there. And I, I ended up interviewing with, um, with a couple of teams, but very fortunately enough, uh, I got a call from the Brewers a few months after I left that there was an opening for their low A team in Appleton, Wisconsin, and it, it ended up working in my favor. And it was, you know, history from from there on out. I was <clears throat> I always get excited because I remember when I first got the call to join the baseball club as well. Uh, it was like my, my very first professional sports job. <clears throat> and I remember getting really excited because I think I had said this to you. Also, for those that don't know, uh, Ben here actually interviewed me. 
<laughs> and I think I might have said this during the the interview, but I was like, listen, I, I as a kid, I wanted to be a, a, a three sport professional athlete. But as I got older, I realized that I'm five, six, about 175, probably not going to go pro in a lot of things. So like, this is my version of pro. So I remember Ben thinking back on that, on that day and just like how excited I was to even just wear the logo. You know, you mentioned something earlier that I'm wondering if we can dive into a little bit, like the sports psych thing, because for me, as, as someone who observes behaviors, it was really interesting in a lot of ways just to see not only the, the baseball culture, but also to see the culture of professional athletes and, you know, r really teasing out some of the like habits and rituals that I'm seeing and some of the mindset shifts and things like that. And it was really cool observing you coaching through that process. So kind of like going back to the sports psych thing, like what are some of the things that you were able to glean uh, in working with athletes? Like, how did you use that? I would say the, one of the biggest things that I maybe didn't think of initially was going to be very important, but became really important was when I was working with the team in, um, both the teams in the AZL team and, and in Appleton with the Timber Rattlers. When when you're in the minor league season, there's so many player moves that happen. And so players could show up almost, almost randomly. Um, yeah. you, you know, certainly certain times, you know, you might get a heads up a week ahead of time. Hey, we just drafted this guy. He's going to throw two starts in Arizona. Then he's coming up to Appleton. You might get a, a heads up like that, but uh, sometimes you may know within 48 hours or maybe within 24 hours that somebody is joining your team. And the, thing you have to remember is anytime somebody joins or leaves the group, you have to restart that cycle of reforming the group. Yeah. Um, so, you know, roles point. become yeah. roles become redefined. There has to be some, you know, there's, there's a storming process. There's maybe some level of conflict, but then you have to then get back to normal business. And so if you think about how many player moves might happen in a season, that process might happen several dozen times. Yeah. And understanding that when that happens, somebody who doesn't necessarily know, like let's say a player doesn't necessarily acknowledge that they're going through that process because the whole team is going through that process. You, you kind of have a better appreciation from the outside that, when you see some, maybe some behavior from them that might be a little bit different than what you've seen the last couple of weeks, but you then realize we just got a new pitcher and they're now fighting for innings coming out of the bullpen. Um, you, you start to realize new things that you may not have recognized before. So it wasn't something I considered immediately, but that was something I always kept in mind yeah. because it starts to tell a different story of why somebody might, you know, have certain certain rituals or they, why they may change their behaviors. Um, and again, it's not necessarily always in, in a bad way. It's not necessarily that you always see somebody change their behaviors and you're just like, Oh my goodness, what's going on with this guy. You just, you know, you notice slightly different things. If somebody is normally a very early person to the ballpark, maybe they start showing up a little bit later than they normally do mm -hmm. or vice versa. Maybe they start showing up a little earlier than they normally do because they want to do extra work. They want to do more stuff. And, and yeah. so you just kind of work with whatever happens. Um, Again, it's not necessarily that everybody is always taken aback and everybody starts to 
take a step backwards when things like that happen. Your job as the coach is to anticipate some of those things and just help people get through that process so we can all get back to reforming the group so that we can put our best performance out on the field. And that sort of lets you kind of, I don't want to say necessarily soften the blow, but it just lets you kind of get ahead of some things. Um, And I think it helps build better relationships because you can empathize better. You, You have an idea that things have changed within the group. So your level of empathy can be a bit more proactive. Ben, I love that too, because it kind of gives us a nice bridge into one of the things that I really wanted to just like talk about and discuss some of the observations that I saw when you were working with athletes. And one of the things I thought was really special, having worked with strength coaches before and those that were part of medical teams, I really didn't see a whole lot of talk and and maybe there might've been some here and there, but actual talk and action pertaining to mindfulness. And that was something, Ben, that I used to observe with you. And and I don't know if if that was a a learned skill set that you had learned from other mentors, but there were a lot of moments that I observed you working with athletes from the standpoint of mindfulness. And so for you, as as you're kind of looking at it, why do people need to be exploring their relationship with mindfulness as it pertains to their performance? This can be athletic performance. This can be performance in life, work, whatever that is. You know, why was it something that you were teaching these professional athletes? I'll say that some of it, I, a lot of it, I definitely learned from my advisor during my master's program was uh, Dr. Barbara Meyer, and she's just absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we, we definitely, mindfulness was at the time that I was doing my master's program was a very, uh, very hot topic in, in sports psychology. And it's something that has been, you know, I think to this day, it's been potentially a little over commercialized. Um, but the, the message still stays the same and the message is still very important. You know, you see a lot of different books about mindfulness and there's a lot of different things, uh, out there to help people become more mindful. I think the way that I approached it was from my perspective as a coach, there's a level of there's a level of expectation that I have for myself to be a good steward yeah. for helping people in this particular instance, athletes who are in a place that I have been being not necessarily in professional sports as an athlete, but I've been 19 to 22 years old. I've been in a place where I'm still figuring out what I want to do. I remember changing my major in college. And I remember that being in that time period comes with a lot of different emotions and a lot of different growing up experiences. And half the team is, is people that are uh, Latin American from the United States. And that's a completely different experience. So if, if I didn't take the time to become mindful of why somebody else's experiences may, um, may actually impact how, they perform in a strength and conditioning context, mm-hmm. then I'm not necessarily doing the, the job to the best of my abilities. And so it, it grew into something, I think by the time that you and I started working together, I had already been learning some of those things for about three years. And so it, it was something that developed over time to just have a, a slightly different approach um, and, and understand that the core 
part of the core part of strength and conditioning that has to be achieved first is the rapport building and the relationship building, which was definitely something we learned from yeah. the sports psych uh, component instead of strength and conditioning in some contexts is very much, this is the program. This is what we're going to do. Just do it. And that can certainly help. And that can certainly be simple and a great way to, to get a lot of things accomplished. But I, I didn't find personally that that was the best approach for me. No, I love that. Cause I think one of the biggest messages, Ben, that I'm getting in this conversation and then, you know, the other thousands of conversations that we've had just about like human performance is when, when working with athletes, it's so important to connect with them on a human level. And it sounds super cliche and, and, and one-on-one. So for listeners out there, if you're like, yeah, Desi, that makes total sense. It's just not something that is always talked about. And i felt like what was really special for the, the friends that I made, you know, inside of the medical team is everyone was really on the same page with, we have to understand who the person is before we can even start catering to their performance. And I really love that because it is very, um, I mean, it's an, it's an analogy to life of understanding people and really creating empathy inside of those relationships. Cause Ben, as I look at it, obviously you're a homegrown kid, you know, this is a dream job for you. I would have thought that you would have stayed in professional sports for the rest of your career, but you decided to pivot. So I, I don't know if I've ever asked you this question. So I'm glad that we're on air to ask this, but you're doing something different now. I would have thought that you would have been in professional sports your whole career. What caused you to think about other opportunities? What caused the pivot? It was, uh, there was a number of factors, but the most important thing was really just that I had a lot of other questions. Uh, I was, mm -hmm. it was more, you know, I, I think when I left my master's program, I had an idea that maybe I would return and go back to school for a PhD at some point. Um, because I was, I, I, I didn't become interested in doing research until my master's program, because in my undergrad, we weren't exposed to a lot of hands-on research during my master's program, UWM is an R1 university. And so there's a lot of research that happens. And the way that the lab uh, functions that I was in is really, really um, heavy on making sure we're always forward thinking and always thinking about what is going to be coming next and how we can um, continue to push out really kind of game-changing research that's going to be very applicable and help the practitioners. Um, and so it was something that, that really piqued my interest, but it wasn't at the time something that I wanted to dive into. I, I wanted to get out there and work and, and see what was out there. And I also had the opportunity to work with the brewers, which, you know, you're right. Like it was, it was definitely a dream yeah. come true um, to work with them for the, you know, six years plus the internship that I did. And it was awesome. And, um, but I, I think after the, after the last, the last year that I was there or during, during the last year that I was there, it was something that I had sort of mulled over for a couple of years that I, I wanted to think about going back to school. And I started to dive a little bit more into what was happening in the tactical space. Mm -hmm. um, tactical strength and conditioning is something that's really, really gro grown in popularity. And yeah, it's there's a lot of different job opportunities out right there. Now, yeah. Yeah. So it's something that, you know, and, and I think at the time that I was in baseball, that was when, again, a lot of, uh, 
a lot of people were reading Jocko Willink's books. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of you know, Mark Devine uh, had yeah. put out books and his podcast was doing really well. So there was a lot of this injection of the tactical mindset into strength and conditioning and actually kind of coming from a leadership and or mindfulness space. And it, it, it was something that as I continued to learn more and continued to think about, I, I continued to communicate with, um, with my now advisor, Dr. Kyle Ebersall at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And he um, has had a longstanding relationship with the Milwaukee Fire Department. And the lab just has put out so many cool papers about what physiologically it's like to be a firefighter. Mm-hmm. And it's something that just really became a huge interest for me. And, um, and at the time I, I was starting to build a lot of questions about, uh, the physiology behind the near maximal intensity exercise, uh, which was something that I saw in baseball because we would see that minor league pitchers, uh, there's a, a couple of papers out there about, you know, minor league pitchers wearing heart rate monitors in game. And you'd see these really intense high heart rate responses to pitching so it was this snowball effect of seeing how can people work at such a high intensity yeah. repeatedly? How can they keep doing that? And the term work capacity was always getting thrown around and it's still a, a hot topic in strength and conditioning. And I just really wanted to know more about it. And, and the best way for me to do that was to pursue a PhD program and, and really set out the time to pursue this research agenda. And that's just, that that's how it, it shook out and it became a great opportunity to come again, come back home, work yeah. at uh, UW Milwaukee with, you know, professors that I knew very well. And, and I knew what I was, uh, I knew what I was getting into with the lab. And I personally was much more ready for graduate school this time than in my master's program, master's yeah. program. I, I just kind of did it because like I applied for it because it seemed like something that, people who were successful strength and conditioning coaches did was they, they went on to pursue a master's degree and it was something that I, I was fortunate enough to get the opportunity to work with Dr. Meyer. Um, but my expectations for myself weren't necessarily, um, matching with what I actually, again, my skill set wasn't necessarily matching with the demand of what I was going to have to do. Yeah. So my master's program was a big learning curve for me of what graduate school is like. And by the time I was done, I was, I was starting to get it a little bit more, uh, but then I started working. And so having some more time to think about it and get ready and build these questions, uh, it, it got me more in the mindset of, I think that I would be more ready to pursue graduate school now mm-hmm. than I was before. And, and so far I, I feel like it's been going a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. um, I feel like the the process has been definitely a lot better, and and it's been so many great conversations. I've I know I've Savannah can attest. I've read more research, more research papers laying around my office than I've ever had, yeah. and it's uh it's been a much more it's been a very fulfilling experience experience yeah. so far. Ben. From the from the aspect of like human performance, it, again, I'm getting to ask you questions I don't think I've asked, and this is such a great avenue to go. Um, from the standpoint of human performance, can we tap into the physiological not only needs but also strain of firefighters? I've I've always 
I've always wondered this because my knowledge of it is they go from a certain state to a heightened state of fight or flight very, very quickly, which obviously has its, you know, cascades with what's going on in the body. Um, but I, I would love to kind of tap in your brain here. Like what are the physiological needs and what are the, what is the physiological strain of what's going on with these firefighters? Yeah. Uh, so many things, uh, as, as you alluded to, it is this, you know, on the surface, a, a shift, a 24 hour shift is going to involve multiple calls, whether they're medical calls or they're fire calls. Um, and each call has its own level of not only external workload, so the this you know the amount of work that you need to actually accomplish to get the task done, um, and every you know every call that has that external workload is going to create internal workload. So your heart rate response, your oxygen consumption, blood pressure, things like that, and those vary across the different calls. So across a 24 hour shift, there's going to be these varying levels of intensity mm-hmm. um, and certain houses in Milwaukee um, may get 24 to 26 calls in a, in a shift. So you're never really at a steady state. Yeah, you're never at really a rest state. Yeah. You're getting a, a ton of calls in an entire shift and it's very intense uh, for everybody. And so understanding just like professional athletes, if that's the sort of performance aspect of it, everything that comes before and or after is on the preparation and the recovery side. Yes. Yes. And, and so trying to find the best way of managing that cycle across not just one shift, but multiple shifts per month, per year, per 25 to 30 year plus career is going to you know, really help to set everybody up for a healthy retirement. And currently, uh, currently firefighters are, you know, they're obviously at a really, really high risk for injury because of the physical nature of their job. But, um, you know, 44% of the total firefighter fatalities in 2021 were due to sudden cardiac death. So it's not all people who are, you know, falling off of second stories or they're, you know, being, hit and having blunt trauma it's it's people who are having heart attacks and having cardiovascular issues and for for me i think the question that you asked about what the physiology is 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 really what what i'm trying to learn more about myself yeah Um, yeah. you know we know that that their heart rate response during a fire call may be at or near maximal levels and understanding that that's going to have to continue to happen um, across an entire career span I want to know more about how can people keep working at maximal level yeah, and, yeah. and maintain that across an entire career. And, and it happens in, in so many different avenues. Like I'm personally focusing on firefighters with my research, but you know, we saw it in athletes. We saw it with people at the brewers where it's these repetitive, really high intensity efforts over the course of an entire career over years of performance um, and some people handle it really, really well. And some people are, are struggling. And so that's why there's, you know, strength coaches and athletic trainers and medical staff to try and, you know, help be the stewards of proper preparation and recovery around these levels of performance. <clears throat> I don't know. We saw something, Ben, the other day. Uh, we were out on our family walk uh, in Arizona. 
And there was a couple of fire trucks at the park and they were playing uh, ultimate Frisbee, I think, whatever that I've never played, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> but they were like, you know, just being active, doing their thing, having some fun. And we were walking by and Callie was like, how cool would that be if we got to see a call or something like that? And then literally like five seconds later, you could hear it on their walkie talkies. And so what was interesting to me, and I don't, I don't know if this was just this particular house, a uh, culture that was set up or what, I, you know, I might be able to ask you this question, but what was interesting to observe was no one was rushing to the trucks. Like everyone would kind of like took their time. And I, as I was looking at it, I was thinking to myself, I was like, I wonder why they're not rushing. Like, obviously there's an emergency going on. And the more that I was observing, the more that I observed the firefighters, like taking these deep diaphragmatic breaths, like they were just like calm as they were getting in. And in my brain, I'm still like, yo, why aren't you guys rushing? Like someone needs your help right now. And Callie had just mentioned, she was like, well, I mean, it makes sense. Don't you think like you don't want them rushing to this call, super stressed. Like you want them calm because they're going to be making decisions and stuff like that. And I was like, oh shit, like that makes total sense. So again, I don't know if this was just a house thing, but you mentioned the the preparation and the recovery piece, Ben, which I think is so special and, and very consistent with what we're seeing in just human performance. Are there things that you're finding in your research that firefighters should be doing in order to perform at a high level because their physiological needs are so like, I guess, scattered? I mean, what are you finding? Well, it's, I'll say that my, my research agenda is still fairly, uh, fairly new. Um, so I wouldn't say that there's anything from my research that I would recommend mm -hmm. other than general good recommendations for, for healthy fit, uh, healthy fit bodies. And I know the national fire protection, um, association recommends a, a minimum, um, VO two max of 42.0 milliliters you about per, kilogram yeah, per okay. minute. Um, you know, and that's, that's something that, that they recommend to safely perform job tasks. And there's a lot of different research out there that has on, uh, that has examined the oxygen consumption of simulated firefighting tasks. Um, and there's research that has examined the heart rate response of firefighters to actual emergencies. Mm -hmm. So uh, th I think all of that can be guidance for, you know, firefighters to understand that you, you generally need to maintain a, a healthy level of fitness and maintaining a high aerobic capacity is going to be important, but there's so many different factors of fitness that have been indicated to be linked to, to good performance and mm -hmm. really good performance. And the research has been sought at or seen as um, like the time to complete a task. So, you know, a shorter time to complete a task would be good performance. And um, because we, we don't want, you know, if you're looking at data, you don't want a normal distribution of, you know, firefighting response times. Like you want them to be shorter. Like you want the emergencies to be resolved quickly, which mm -hmm. that would be a good thing. Um, but things like general muscular strength, muscular endurance, aerobic capacity, uh, maintaining a, a optimal body composition, those types of things are, are great components of general fitness. And they, they are important as well for, for tactical athletes, specifically the firefighters as well, because they're, they're building a, they're trying to build a good engine of, um, of performance so that when they do perform, it's not something that's taking all of their resources out of them yeah. because they're going to have to keep doing it. They're going to have to keep going on calls for the rest of the shift. And 
you know, as you saw with uh, with those firefighters responding, whatever they heard on their their radios, let them know the level of response they needed to have mm. to get to that emergency. Yeah, because every, every you know every department's going to have some expectation of you know your time to get to the emergency. You know, your time to from when you hear the tone or you hear that there's something going on, and you need to get in the engine or on the truck and get to the emergency, there's a time that you have to get there um, and everything's logged. And so even though to you, it seemed like they were, they were moving a little bit slower, mm -hmm. they've practiced and they've yeah. done that so many times that they're, them putting their PPE on is easy and they know exactly how to throw their, um, their SCBA on and get everything hooked up, get all the hoses, you know, hooked up and turned on and they're ready to go. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, which is an interesting thing too, because there was a paper that uh, one of the doctoral students in our lab um, actually published a couple of years ago um, that actually examined that if you only uh, look at the heart rate response that firefighters have to hearing the tone. So they're in the firehouse, there's a tone, a special tone for a medical call, and there's a special tone for a fire call. Okay. There is actually a different heart rate response to just hearing the tone. So once sense. they know it's a yeah, yeah. when yeah. they know that it's a fire call, the heart rate goes a little bit higher. When they know it's a medical call, their heart rate gets elevated, but it's definitely not quite as high as when they know it's a fire call. Yeah, <clears throat> it's such an interesting thing. Uh, and selfishly, I'm I'm excited to continue to have a front row seat to your process because I get to ask questions like these to to my friends. <laughs> um, you know, Ben, as you're kind of looking at your trajectory right now uh obviously you have a couple years i will never call you dr mendelson i'm just never gonna do it <laughs> and um, i will never respond <laughs> <laughs> but as you're kind of looking at your trajectory right now ben um what excites you most because i mean you you left professional baseball which the the normal listener and, and viewer of this is gonna be like why would you do that but obviously you had a calling, right? And you answered that call. So for you, what, what excites you about what you're doing? It's a lot of the things that, that excited me about working in professional sports, you know, from a strength and conditioning background, I love knowing about, uh, knowing about what it physically takes to get work done. Mm -hmm. Um, and, there's so many, there's so much research out there about the physiological response to exercise. A lot of it is, um, is in steady state sports. So, you know, long distance running, cycling, things like that. There's a, a lot of different avenues there. There's a lot more, uh, research that's been coming out in the last, you know, last 10, 15 years in different kinds of team sports, um, like rugby or soccer, but, what excites me is, you know, specifically, specifically the questions that I developed and started thinking about when I was working in baseball and just knowing there's a very wide range of fitness levels for baseball players. And baseball has traditionally been thought of as a sport that people don't need to be super fit in order to play. Mm -hmm. But we generally saw that fitter people were also really good performers. Um, more consistently, I'll say. I mean, there are definitely people who uh, are great baseball players, may not have the most ideal level of fitness, but you know, that's that's what you work with, and if that's 
that's the way that you manage their overall health and performance over time, then that's, that's the way that it is. There's always going to be outliers. Um, but for me, I, I just can't get away from looking at things like um, we saw super high intensity work in baseball. We saw super high, see super high intensity work in, um, in firefighting and in tactical operations. And there's, there's something in that area of understanding what happens when human beings have to operate at near your highest sustainable level that I, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning is yeah, understanding yeah. like how can we know more about what what the highest sustainable level is and what is work capacity what what creates somebody's uh what creates somebody's ability to do high intensity work over and over and over again and be fine with it yeah i I think a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of it probably stemmed even as far back as, um, you know, years ago when I, I started learning more about CrossFit, like everybody else, when it started being put on, on TV and I had a, a, one of my college roommates was really, you know, he, he worked out, he was the first person I knew who did CrossFit. And, um, it was something that was as a, as a business, it was foreign to me, but obviously circuit training and calisthenics were something that we as kids did in gym class and, and just that level of, that level of work, um, was something that I wasn't necessarily totally distanced from, but seeing it all put together in a competitive standpoint, and then seeing that if you were to compare, say, you know, an ultra marathoner versus a CrossFit athlete, both athletes have to sustain a high amount of work for a long period of time, but a CrossFit athlete is going to be doing, you know, one hour chunks of really high intensity near maximal work with rest in between, but they can still do it and still perform at a super high level over the course of multiple events in a day where an ultra marathoner or a triathlete, they're going to be going through, you know, you know, hundred miles of running or, they're going to go through a full Ironman of work. It's not going to necessarily be these one hour chunks of super high near maximal work. And then they're just resting, but they're going to find a way to get the job done. And both of those are elite level athletes in their own right. Yeah. And there are those people that also operate as firefighters. And there's people that operate in that capacity as baseball players and in so many different avenues. And I just, I just can't not keep looking at that. <clears throat> I have so many more questions, Ben, and <laughs> I know you have to get to work. Um, so I want to be respectful of that. So you have to promise me that we're going to do a round two, because the question that I want to ask essentially is if we're looking at people performing at their highest, we're also looking at some fitness metrics, right? So like, how do we, how do we take some of those gems into for our listeners right now that are all at different areas, but also have performance needs? Um, you, all right. You got to promise me we're going to do a round two of this. We'll do a, we'll do like a, a rituals for resilience episode or something. So you got to <laughs> promise me. Is that okay? Well, you know, we'll have to circle up <laughs> offline, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> <clears throat> awesome. Well, Ben, I, I love you, buddy. I, I always wanted to do this, uh, to have you on is, is a, uh, a, a huge milestone of having like friends jump on this. It's super special to me, man. And I know how valuable your time is, bro. So thank you so much for taking some time. 
So I do want to ask you the question that I ask all of our guests. Um, obviously, this is the Can't Believe I Made It podcast. So have you made it? And if not, what does making it look like for you in your current season of life? I would, I would say I don't think I've made it. Uh, I think the growth process is always happening and it's always continual, but it's always fun to achieve different milestones and you kind of have those little micro feelings of, I think I made it like, for instance, uh, I just published my first paper, uh, within the last month, which was really exciting. Took a long process to do that. Congrats, dude. Um, thank you. And so that was a, that was, it was both a, wow, I can't believe this finally happened, but also this is the first, this is just the first one. Yeah. We're we're hopefully going to get a lot more of these. (laughs) So, so no, I, I don't necessarily think I've made it, um, but I'm excited to see uh, what continues to happen. I don't know if I'll ever feel like I, I made it because um, I just want to keep figuring out what's next. Yeah. Yeah, man, the, uh, the, the curiosity that you have uh, just about life is, is really cool to, to see from a friend perspective. So, uh, dude, I'm super excited to continue to have, like I said, that front row seat to, to your process, being able to pick your brain on some really cool scientific things. So, uh, man, congratulations to where you're at, bro. I'm excited to see you continue to to rise, man. Absolutely. Congrats to you, Desi. For all the things, (laughs) all the things, man. I can't believe that you made it. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Uh, Ben, can we get access to that paper? I would love to put it in the show notes. Uh, you know, cause typically I'll say like, Hey, you know, how can we support you? But you're not really a, a social media person, so that doesn't really apply. But I would love to get readers right. on your study. <laughs> yeah, I will. Uh, I'll send you the link. It's it's on an open access journal, so it's free to access oh. for everybody. You don't have to access it through a library or anything like that. So yeah, I'll send you the link. Perfect. Okay. All right. So for our listeners out there, uh, we'll make sure we put that in the show notes. Uh, I'm going to have Ben back on because I have some burning questions about human performance <laughs> that I think are super relative to what we can do to perform at our highest level from the standpoint of that preparation recovery that Ben had talked about. So Benjamin, thank you so much for coming back on, man. Uh, we'll have you for a round two, but yeah, appreciate you, buddy. Absolutely. Thanks, Des.